Let us pray. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Alleluia. Amen. Sometimes I think we get the sense that the earliest church was sort of the ideal, the perfection of all of the things that we have since lost, that that first, very first community was sort of a sweetness and light and the kingdom had come and all of that. But that's hard to hang on to when you actually start reading Acts. Um, It seems to have lasted a few weeks like that because humans are human throughout time. And these earliest chapters of Acts talk about the first community of Jesus followers. They weren't even Christians yet, but Jesus followers in Jerusalem and how they lived communally and dedicated themselves to the common good. But almost immediately the book goes on to remind us that it's really, really hard to have as much empathy for those whom we deem other as we do for those who are closer to us. (laughs) So this chronicle of how the church grew is really important to us as we seek to live into community together even now. Because as the church grew, obviously its geography widened, as members of the community of believers became too numerous to be personally known by all of the other members, it is pretty normal, humans being who we are, that there grew some dissension, shall we say between those who not long before would have felt very little kinship one with another. It is pretty normal, as far as I'm concerned anyway, that the church would have to spend a little soul-searching time trying to figure out what it might mean to be a Jesus follower in this growing, developing community. Maybe even spending some time figuring out who should be allowed to call themselves a follower of the way or of Jesus. Because as the church grew, it found that it had already begun making assumptions about how the world worked and about who would become part of the church and about the experience that those in the church would have and what those experiences would mean. The questions that came up around circumcision weren't really about that particular practice necessarily. That was just the nice little tip of the iceberg that they were actually going to argue about, but... We all know that church arguments aren't always about the things we're arguing about, are they? This whole discussion and debate, this whole reason that Paul and Barnabas got called into the principal's office to talk about this one particular issue, it was because they needed to have a conversation about who they were. They needed to talk about identity formation. Since Jesus himself had been Jewish and most of his earliest followers had been as well, part of the identity of some of those earliest Jesus followers was as Jewish still, which is why we can't call them Christians yet. But the ministries of those who worked outside of Judea and Galilee, notably the ministries of Paul, but also certainly of Peter, they began to call that whole identity and that whole quest, that whole desire for connection and shared experience into question. And when you start calling identity into question, people get, how do I put this, a little twitchy. It's a really hard thing when you start 
having to go back in and figure out if all of the things you've built your life on are really true. It's easy to read a story like this and act as history, right? We read this whole thing, Jerry did a beautiful job, and we read it and go, oh, isn't that cute? You were debating circumcision. That was a long, long time ago. Pat you on the head. We read them as stories of those who just hadn't figured things out yet, the things that we can know and take for granted, and we're just waiting for them to catch up with us. So it's easy to listen in on those debates with a slightly patronizing lens, as though saying, isn't it cute? James and the others finally figured out what we already knew, because, like, obviously. The stories of a decision made millennia ago now, which are no longer pressing in our lives, feel inevitable. We know the outcome. It's a story of some less advanced time before they'd gotten to our level. Which means that when we read them, we have a tendency to lose a lot of what the stories might be able to say to us here and now. And I'm not saying that we're still debating and discussing the question of circumcision and whether that should be required for entry into the church. I am not going to check y'all when a baby gets baptized. That is way above my pay grade. And it seems like a settled question to most of us. We don't debate this particular topic, although... The question certainly lasted a lot longer than this one moment would have us believe. But there do remain before us questions of identity that we are still having to debate and still having to consider and still being uncomfortable with. We still debate who has the power in our churches, in our faith, to say who is in and who is out, to say who can set the parameters of a given identity and who cannot. So we don't debate circumcision at this point, but we still do debate the worthiness of people to be in community with us by means of certain symbols and acts to which we assign meaning. And it behooves us to pay very close attention when we start to do that. Because we still create a sense of identity with particular understandings and expectations that come out of our lived experiences, but are not necessarily shared with those who might also be called to this identity as Christian. We don't debate circumcision, at least not as a faith practice, but we still insist that those who would change the paradigm plead their cases before those who hold power, often those who hold power by virtue of the very paradigm that is being called into question, which is a very difficult place to be. So, for example, like we're not talking circumcision in our lives, in our daily routines, but those with substance use disorder might come before us asking for the dignity of being treated as humans rather than as criminals. And those who are on public assistance might come before us asking us to see them as complex individuals with complex stories rather than as the stereotype of the welfare queen. Indigenous people might come before us asking us to see the ways that we continue to take from them land and culture and sovereignty and even children rather than using them as our mascots and calling it honor. Black people come before us asking us to see disparities in policing and voting rights and health care and labor rather than seeing the individuals as threatening figures who bring their own misfortune upon themselves. Marginalized people come before us asking us to recognize their humanity even though their experiences are not ours 
And they do all of this because we who have created this culture to be comfortable for us, who are the dominant figures in it so much of the time, have likewise assigned ourselves the role of judge and arbiter over the worthiness of others to participate in our community. We haven't changed so much from those earliest apostles who tried very, very hard to maintain a culture that was really comfortable for them, even as the church grew. The question of circumcision in the ancient church was not a small one, even though we look back on it now as though it's not a big deal. Because the initial impetus for circumcision among those who were Jewish had come directly from God to Abraham. It was the earliest mark of identity formation as God's people. It had been a key component in their identity well before Moses, even though he's the one they bring up now. And that's a really important thing for us to remember, that this discussion for them is on par with our modern discussions of something like white supremacy in terms of the emotional and psychological weight of the subject. We can bring this forward into our modern era very, very easily. And so it really behooves us, as we listen to them debate and question the importance of this identity formation in their time and for their people, to hear what happens right in the middle of the section we read today, where it says, And they kept silence and listened. They sat in silence. They didn't just sit and listen. Even the Greek is super redundant here. It's really emphasizing the fact that they sat in silence and listened. I hear a lot of conversation around me about how this world would just be better if we could listen to one another. And there are absolutely ways that this is true. Y'all know my feelings about the power of story, after all. I think that's a, you know, question that comes up for me on a regular basis. But I find that more often than is comfortable, the people who beg us to listen are those who feel that their ability to set the narrative that we should all be living by to see their experiences as universal and normative, the you know direction that we should all be heading, has been diminished by the presence of new voices that they're not used to hearing in the culture around us. Listening is indeed an excellent skill set to have, but using the idea of listening as a way to silence all but the dominant voices is just oppression in the guise of kindness. So I think it's totally worth stopping for a very long moment on this one sentence in our scripture passage today to consider this council, this meeting in Jerusalem of the people who have set themselves to be, in fact, judge and arbiter of what it is to be a Jesus follower, debating the hot-button issue of their day, who are willing to sit in absolute silence while those who plead for that paradigm to change are allowed to tell their stories. It is absolutely normal that as they gathered there in Jerusalem, there would be dissension, that people would be upset, that this was not a calm and sweet conversation between rational people. This is identity formation 
That's not a thing you discuss super rationally all the time. It's not a question that is going to keep people calm. And it is really, really super normal that having to change one's entire sense of self to say that maybe circumcision isn't a big deal after all for the sake of those who are considered outsiders would be enough to have that whole gathering just stewing. We've all been there where you're, you're telling your story and you know no one is actually listening because they're just sitting there and stewing and just waiting for the chance. Remember? We've all done this, right? Like, we know exactly what that feels like. Because that whole gathering would probably be feeling something along the lines of grief and anger and fear, those being the normal human responses to massive change. But the writer of Acts takes the time to very, very redundantly tell us that all of these people debating this massive change to everything they have known and expected and understood in their lives found it important to sit in silence, not stewing, not grumbling, not talking back, to sit in silence and listen to those who seek change, to a reality that has brought meaning to generation upon generation. They sit in silence and willing to listen What a profound moment that must have been. Can you imagine what that must have been like for Paul and for Barnabas, these outsiders to this particular Jerusalem crowd, these two who, whatever their conversion experiences or their importance to us two millennia later, Paul wrote a hefty chunk of what we now consider scripture after all. But they were still in that particular moment, right back there in the book of Acts, they were just the two who'd never met Jesus really. They were the two who hadn't been apostles, who hadn't been present at the crucifixion. And it would be super easy to use that, that little piece, you weren't really there, to silence them, to say, you don't have the power to set this narrative. You don't have the power to say who's in and who's out, because you weren't really there at the time, and we were. But they don't do that. The council kept silence. Willing to hear their stories. Willing to listen to stories that questioned the prevailing wisdom. Stories that shifted the paradigm that you had to be Jewish to follow Jesus. Stories that changed the people who heard them and their very sense of what this new identity could possibly mean. Can you imagine what that would be like in any of our modern equivalencies? What it would be like to not only invite diverse voices into the room, but to actually allow them to change the narrative. What it would be like to actually keep silence and listen with our whole hearts, to listen without preparing our rebuttal, to listen without defensiveness, to listen in a way that might allow us to be broken open into new ways of being and new ways of seeing the entire world. What would it be like to fully incorporate people, to bring them into our body, who would shift our sense of identity, who would cause us to expand our understandings of what it means to be a Jesus follower, of what it means to truly be one body in Christ with compassion and grace and empathy beyond our ideas. 
and all of our constructions about who is supposed to be in and who is supposed to be out, who is supposed to be us and who is supposed to be other. Can you imagine listening in such a way that for once it is not fear that holds power over us, but the very love that Jesus asked and modeled for us? That's the sort of listening that the Jerusalem Council embodied for Paul and for Barnabas. It's the sort of listening and the sort of love that Jesus embodied to the Syrophoenician woman who called him out when he suggested that she was a dog, who called him to see God's love as bigger than he had imagined and changed him in that moment. Because this is the sort of listening that changes us that brings about the death of the old self and a resurrection, a new life made possible through love. The love that listens without defensiveness. As we let go of fearful, insular, exclusionary ways, as we let go of identities based on symbols that no longer hold us fully into the covenant and live into new communities and new symbols and new ways of being that keep our hearts focused on love and grace and mercy that will push us beyond ourselves in search of a God whose stories are more than just our own lived experiences. Because the listening that our faith asks of us has always asked of us. That listening keeps us silent until we hear the voice of God in the person on food stamps, who doesn't want to have to say no yet again when their kid wants lobster for their birthday dinner. Because poverty shouldn't mean your kid never gets something nice. It should keep us listening until we hear the voice of God and the black man who talks about the fear in his guts every single time he sees a law enforcement vehicle and who asserts that black lives matter because so much of his life has told him that they don't. It is the listening that keeps us silent until we hear the voice of God in the Sequipank First Nation who knew perfectly well that the residential schools were full of mass graves and who need us to grieve these horrors, to hold this pain. Or the Ojibwe in northern Minnesota who are protesting a new pipeline and asking us to remember that tribal land is only sovereign until it is profitable to the dominant culture. The listening of our faith asks us to hear the voice of our God, the creator of all life, in all life, rather than just in the folks who look like us, or whose experience sounds like ours, with whom we can make easy and instantaneous connections. The listening of our faith asks us to hear the voice of God in all life, rather than just in the spaces that we have created to hold God, and rather than just in the ways that we have established for our own dominant comfort. Because the listening that our faith asks of us is the listening that allows us to change, that asks us to change and to grow and to learn. It is the listening that brings about resurrection and new life in our daily experiences because it is the listening that shows forth God in this world in all of God's complex diversity. And I don't think it's necessarily any easier for us than it was for that Jerusalem Council all those years ago. These are hard issues. These are issues that make us question the very core of everything we've known. It is scary 
when the stories we hear make us question our very identity, our very understandings of this world and how it works, even perhaps our own participation in systems that have been deeply unjust, whether or not we knew about them or understood about them or intended to be part of them. The conversations of our day are every bit as fraught and as frightening and as divisive as the one held in Jerusalem so many centuries ago. But we have one thing that they did not. We know how the story ends. We know what happened as the death of that one identity, that one symbol opened ways to new life in a more inclusive body. And so we trust. We look into our past and we hold in faith that our own listening, our own change can bring forth life, even when it might feel like death. For that is the way of our faith. That is the way our listening works as Christians. We are called to live continually into the promises of Easter and to remember that that can never happen until you've had a good Friday. The ways of our faith, listening included, remind us that the moments that seem to be endings, the changes that seem to destroy our foundations, are never the final chapter. In the story that God is continually telling, through the voices that we are called to hear and embody as our own, even when they seem so, so different than anything we've known. For the silence of our listening moment is the silence of the tomb in the moment before the stone is rolled away and the sunlight of a new life shines upon us by the grace of God, our eternal storyteller who calls us to find new ways forward. Thanks be to God. Alleluia. Amen.